Join me in prayer as we uh, give thanks for today. Father, God, first of all, we want to say that uh, uh, you are our God. There is none other. This morning uh, was just a reminder that the that you have created all things, you've created us, and uh, uh, there isn't anybody else that we can turn to or ask things from. You are the God. So we love you and want to bring praise and honor to you. And thank you, God, that uh, we have this opportunity to be here today and learn from your word and to be part of the church family. You are so good to us, God. And then also, we get to remember this morning that uh, you loved us so much that in our sin and our choices that we made that would have separated us from you, you made a way through your son Jesus. So thank you for that. And um, help show us uh, how we can live generously as your people. That's what Phil is uh, teaching us through your word these, these weeks that we've had prior to this and this week, Lord. So open our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Dean. Late one night this past week, I was just doing some casual, and really that's the best way to say it, some casual light research for the message. The title for today's message is Living Generously Through Time. So I was looking up some different things and bouncing around from one place to the next, trying to discover if anybody had put together a breakdown of data or information on how people spend their days. And I found a few really interesting studies. Some I thought were pretty accurate, and others I thought, well, I, I'm not sure I buy that. The most accurate one I found still has some subjectivity in it, but it really seems to be pretty spot on. And I want to show you what I discovered in this process, starting with people in the demographic of 24 to 55 years old working with children in their home. Now, they asked a pretty significant number of people, the researchers did, to provide information back to them. So they have a broad spectrum of folks that responded, and as they put all of this together, it does seem like it is pretty spot on. So this is 24 to 55-year-olds that are working and have children living at home. Look at how they break down their day. Starting with sleeping, 7.6 hours. Now, that was the first place that I stopped and hesitated a bit thinking that can't be accurate because people with small children in their home long for 7.6 hours of sleep a night. But then moving on, working and related activities as they do relate to work, 8.6 hours a day, that seemed pretty accurate. Leisure and sports, 2.6 hours. Household activities, 1.1 hours. Eating and drinking, 1.1 hours. Caring for others, 1.2 hours. And then this ambiguous piece of the pie called other, 1.8 hours. Then they went to another demographic, college students, university students, and they wanted to break down their day, so they gathered information from all around the country and put it in the same type of chart. This is what they came up with. Sleeping, 8.4 hours. Leisure and sports, 3.6 hours. Working and related activities, three hours. I found this to be pretty interesting. College students, university students, so ostensibly education is their full-time job. Educational activities, 3.4 hours a day. <laughs> Eating and drinking, 1.1 hours. This made me laugh. Grooming, 0.8 hours. 
traveling 1.5 hours, and then this ambiguous piece of the pie called other 2.2 hours. Now we have that other piece of the pie and the leisure piece of the pie that the researchers decided that they would break down, and they did that through the gathering of data from those that were part of this survey. And here's what they came up with for leisure time on an average day. Watching TV, 2.7 hours. Fella came out to me after first service and he said, I take issue with that because I watch Fox News three hours a day. That doesn't factor in the other stuff. Watching TV, 2.7 hours a day. Socializing and communicating, 38 minutes a day. Reading, 18 minutes. Participating in sports, exercise, and recreation, 19 minutes. Playing games, using computer for leisure, 25 minutes. To that I say, bah There are a whole lot of people that spend more than 25 hours a day just looking at their phone. They haven't even turned on their computer yet, 25 minutes a day, liars. And then when you put the whole gaming community into the mix of that, 25 minutes a day doesn't even come close. Not in the world that we live in today. Relaxing and thinking, 17 minutes. And then even among leisure activity, a piece of the pie that says other leisure activities, 17 minutes. Now here's what's strikingly obvious to me. Out of all of these people, and once again, they surveyed quite a number of people. Out of all of these people, nobody mentioned time spent in the Word of God. Nobody mentioned time spent praying. Nobody mentions time spent serving the Lord. Now that could easily be captured in some of that leisure ambiguity or the other piece of the pie called other that we don't really have defined. Maybe it's included in there, but for whatever reason, it was not significant enough in their life to give it its own title, its own piece of the pie. And what a tragedy that is. What a tragedy. Because really what that's telling us is in our modern culture, our modern society, time spent either with God or serving God has fallen so far down the page that it doesn't get its own piece of the pie. It doesn't get its own heading, its own title. And that's tragic. It is truly tragic. Particularly given this teaching in the Bible found in the 90th Psalm. If you have your Bibles with you, open up with me to that place. Psalm chapter 90. First service, there weren't a lot of pages turning, so I hope that you'll beat that today. Psalm chapter 90, verse 12. Moses actually writes this. It is a huge mistake to believe that David was the only author of the Psalms, and a lot of people believe that. He wasn't. There were several psalmists, though David was certainly the author of the bulk of the Psalms. Moses is credited with at least three of them. This happens to be one of them. Psalm chapter 90, verse 12, Moses writes, and this is his prayer to God. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Some translations actually read, teach us to number our days aright that we may get a heart of wisdom. What Moses is really saying is, Lord, we only have a certain number of days on this earth. Teach us to use them well. Teach us to draw as much out of those days from you as we possibly can. That's how we'll develop a heart of wisdom. And then teach us to put as much out of our days that will reflect you. So we want to draw from you and we want to give you away through every day that we have on the face of this earth. What a powerful prayer. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. 
Teach us to number our days that we will use them well. Teach us, Lord, to number our days so that they will glorify you. Now that means that we have to get into an exploration of how we use time if we are really going to accomplish what Moses is talking about. If we want to number our days right and we ask the Lord to teach us how to do that, then we're going to have to study the very use of time that makes that possible. And I know this won't shock you. You've heard me talk about this type of thing before. The Bible speaks to it. When it comes to time, there is one place in particular in all of Scripture that just kind of jumps off the page. It is the go-to spot for people when they are looking at how to use time. It's found in the book of Ecclesiastes. Why don't you turn there with me? Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Funny-sounding book in the Old Testament, but there is some great teaching in it. Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, is the author of this book. He writes it as he looks back on his life. All of the things that he chose to do, the ways that he chose to spend his time, his money, his efforts, his influence. As he goes through all of it, he will eventually end up saying it's all vanity. That's all it is. It's all vanity. The only thing that matters is how we serve the Lord. But in chapter 3 of this book, he actually gives us the most comprehensive description of time that we will find. Listen to this. Chapter 3, verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Now, a lot of what he's saying is incredibly practical. Things like this. A time to be born and a time to die. Those two dates belong to God. The date of your birth, the date of your conception, and the end of your life. Those belong to God. Those aren't anybody else's to determine. Those dates belong to the Lord. And then he goes on to say a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted or a time to harvest. Again, that's dependent upon God. We don't control the weather. God does. So there is a certain time of year, a season, if you will, where you're supposed to plant your crops. And then there's a season where you're supposed to harvest. Now, whether you're a farmer or whether you're a gardener, it doesn't matter. There is a time of year set aside for both, and that time is determined by the Lord. Those are just some of the practical things that Solomon is laying out for us. He gets into the abstract as he goes on with things like this. Join me in verse 5. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. doesn't really make sense to us, though really what that is is just a reference to work. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing a relational reference. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. Again, that's in the abstract. What he's really teaching is there's a time for the accumulation of things. A time to keep. But there is also a time for getting rid of things. In Western culture and society, we are really good at the first one. We are really good at gathering things, 
gathering stuff and accumulating stuff. We are not very good at casting those things away. When the time comes to get rid of them, we hold on to them for all we're worth. If you don't believe me, go look in your closets. If you don't believe me, go down into your basement. Take a look. You may have forgotten that there is a time to cast away. That's just a normal part of our society. But Solomon is telling us time comes when you need to start shrinking some things, getting rid of a few things, minimalizing parts of your life. That's what he's saying in the abstract. But I want you to pay really close attention to how Solomon is approaching this idea of time. He isn't talking about it in the realm of weeks, years, days, months, nothing like that. He is talking about seasons. Pay close attention, verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. There is a season for everything, and God has set that aside. Now here's what we're talking about. Let's begin with what we're not talking about so that we can get to what we're talking about. He's not talking about spring, summer, fall, winter. He's not talking about seasons like that. Solomon's not even talking about things like the 4th of July and Christmas. He's not talking about holiday seasons. He's not talking about football, basketball, baseball. He's not talking about sports seasons. And as hard as this might be to believe, he's not even talking about deer, ducks, or fish. He's not talking about seasons like that. He's talking about the seasons of life. I spend a lot of time talking with people about seasons of life. Deanie, you probably spend a lot of time talking with people about seasons. Liz, you talk with people about seasons all the time. Seasons of life look like this. We are all born into the season of infancy, and then we grow into the season of toddlers, and then the season of children, and then the season of being a teenager, and then a young adult, and if we follow the normal patterns after a few years as a young adult, we become a newlywed. And again, following the normal patterns, then after a, a period as newlyweds, we spend time as young parents, and then the parents of children, and then the parents of teenagers, and then the season changes to become empty nesters, and we spend a few years as empty nesters, and then we become young retireds or newly retired people. And then you get into the fully retired. I am, I'm done and embracing this life. And then we progress into the final seasons of life, the last stages. And that is, again, up to God, however long that may be. Those are the seasons of life that Solomon is talking about. There's a season under the sun for everything. And those seasons change. And that's why I spend a lot of time talking with people about seasons. What season are you in right now? A lot of teenagers are frustrated by the season they're in because they want to be young adults. A lot of young adults are frustrated by the season they're in because they want to be a newlywed. There's newlyweds that are frustrated because they want to be young parents. And we're always trying to push the seasons and we're trying to change the seasons. There's people that are in the season of working and the season of their career that are longing for those days that they'll be retired. And then there are people that are in the season of retirement that are wishing they could roll the hands of the clock back and go back into working. We get frustrated by a lot of the seasons that we are in when really we should be embracing them. But it gets even more convoluted in the world that we live in today found this quote from a fellow named David Gibson. He's a preacher in Scotland. This is really good. He captures modern society and the blurring of our seasons pretty accurately. Take a look. 
Electricity blurs the boundaries between working while it is day and sleeping while it is night. Our online life has become our timeless master. As several screens ping commands without end which we obey without question. Gyms, fuel stations, libraries, offices, and supermarkets are open 24-7, and we come to believe we can do everything all the time. There is no particular season for anything. We do what we want, when we want, and the seasons blur. And they blur for other reasons as well. Yet Solomon says there's a season for everything under the sun, and we need to pay attention to those seasons, particularly the ones that we were in. But Moses says, Moses says, We need to make it smaller than that. Don't focus just on the season. Rather than looking at the season, this big umbrella, this heading that you're living in, boil things down to a really tangible way of dealing with them. Start thinking in terms of days. Days. That's what he said in Psalm chapter 90. Teach us to number our days. He didn't say number our seasons, but number our days. So that we become very purposeful about what we're doing that we might gain from each day and give through each day. That's the the purpose, the plan that God had in mind. Moses understood that, so he was saying, Lord, teach us to number our days. And think about this. In Moses' life, he had gone through very distinct seasons. There was the season that lasted for 40 years in Pharaoh's home where he learned the ways of the Egyptians. There was another 40-year season when he was out tending sheep in the desert. And then there was a 40-year season in his life when he was leading the children of Israel. He understood seasons, but Moses didn't say like Solomon, and nothing wrong with what Solomon said, but Moses didn't go that way. He said, teach us to number our days. Help us think small and tangible and touchable so that we will be very purposeful. The Atlantic Journal just this past spring, published some pretty interesting statistics about lifespans. They determined that in the United States of America in the year 2019, the average lifespan for an American is 79.77 years. 79.77 years. They were wanting to bring that together with global statistics from all around the world. And here's what they discovered. The United States of America, our average lifespan places us right between the nation of Lebanon, which people in Lebanon tend to live just a few months longer than people in the United States of America, and right above people that live in the Czech Republic. People in the Czech Republic, on average, live 79.37 years. So we fit right between Lebanon and the Czech Republic. I never expected that. I really didn't. As I went through the list, I was looking up at the top for the United States. Well, we're not there. Which, by the way, China has the longest life expectancy of any nation in the world. But we're between Lebanon and the Czech Republic. So I took their 79.77 years and just started doing some simple math. I rounded 79.77 up to 80 and then broke it down from there. And here's what I came up with. If we live 80 years... We have 960 months on this earth, 29,200 days, 350,400 hours, 21,024,000 seconds that God gives us to live. 29,200 days. That's what Moses talked about. Because the other numbers may be too much for us to embrace. 
Moses said, Lord, teach us to number 29,200 days right. Teach us to do that, that we might gain from each one what we need to develop a heart of wisdom, and then teach us to give through each of those days, to give back, to give away what we need to. It's really an intriguing idea. You have 29,200 days on average to live on this earth. What are you going to do with them? How are you going to order them? Well, the Bible teaches us how we have to go about that, beginning with the basics. Now, let me show you what I'm talking about. If you have your Bible with you, turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Some of you are thinking right now, I know what's in Exodus chapter 20. That's the Ten Commandments. You're absolutely right. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Listen closely to what God says. These are God's words. This is God's law. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now this was God's plan. We would work six days, but then we would have one day set aside as holy. One day that belongs to him. That's the basics of ordering our life according to God. This is how it is supposed to work. You have six days to work. In our world, that may mean that we go to work four days, if you happen to have a four tens kind of schedule, or five days throughout the course of the week. Then you have that sixth day, which would be Saturday for most of us. Then on Saturday, you're doing everything around the house. You're mowing the yard, you're painting the kitchen, you're doing whatever you have to do. And then on Sunday, the Sabbath, which real quick, follow me through this. In the Old Testament, when this was instituted, the Sabbath was Friday night from 6 o'clock until Saturday night at 6 o'clock because that's how their clocks and their calendars worked. Well, in the New Testament, after Jesus ascended into heaven, we went from the Sabbath worship to the Lord's Day worship. That happens in the book of Acts, and you see it again in the book of Revelation. We don't have enough time to get into it right now. Just trust me on that. We go to worship on the Lord's Day. So this Sabbath command shifts from the Sabbath to the Lord's Day. So that's our seventh day. On that day, according to the baseline of what God ordered and ordained, it belongs to Him. That's God's day. That's a holy day. That's a day set apart for two things, worship and rest. Recharging your batteries, rejuvenating. Now, in the intertestamental period, when the Pharisees and the Sadducees rose up, they started to dilute the whole idea of Sabbath rest by attaching man-made laws. Things like this. You can't walk more than a mile on the Sabbath. You can't cook a meal on the Sabbath. You can't build a fire on the Sabbath. You can't do this. You can't do that. All kinds of different man-made laws got attached to the idea of Sabbath rest, when really all God was saying is Sabbath rest involves worship and recharging your batteries. That's what it's all about. Worship and recharging your batteries. Church and resting. That's how we make it holy. 
That's what that is all about. Which, by the way, as we read in Exodus chapter 20, we hear about you not doing any work, your manservant, your maidservant, your livestock, or anything else. That's normal aspects of work. God says you don't do it. You don't do it on that seventh day. You stop. You stop everything you're doing, and you recharge your batteries. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to sit on the couch and stare at the carpet. It may mean that after church, you go fishing, or you go for a hike, or you go for a walk, or you go for a drive, or you do whatever it is that allows you to recharge your batteries. It may mean that on Sunday after church, you go home and nap, and you do it with zeal and passion. Somebody in first service applauded when I said that. I mean, loud applause. Maybe you watch football, whatever it is that allows you to recharge your batteries, but it follows worship. Worship and rest. Now, I want you to pay close attention to what Jesus, or not what Jesus says, what God says about that whole idea. This is found in the book of Leviticus. Genesis, Exodus, then Leviticus 23, verse 3. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. Tucked away right in the middle of that is this really strange term. It is a holy convocation. Now, if we had enough time to go around this entire room and ask everybody what it is that you believe that means, we would come up with a variety of answers, but most of them would sound like this. It's a holy conviction. I know that because it's where my mind went, and then with the guys that I pray with on Sunday mornings, I ask that question, and that's the first place anybody went. It is a holy conviction, but that's not actually it. The convocation is an invitation. It is an invitation from God. The whole idea of Sabbath rest is an invitation from God to enter into something that he created for us. And he didn't just create it for us, he created it to be something special for us. Now don't believe me, believe the Bible. This is back in Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So in Leviticus, when we read about it being a holy convocation, a holy invitation, Sabbath is an invitation to enter into a blessing with God that you don't find anywhere else. It is a blessing from the Lord. That blessing is illustrated this way. If we will set Sabbath aside and do what we are supposed to with it, worship and rest, then our productivity the rest of the week will be magnified. The work that you do the rest of the week will be so much better than what it would look like if you chose to work through Sabbath rather than doing what it was designed for, which is, say it with me, worship and rest. Those are the two parts of Sabbath. The blessing is from God the productivity that comes as a result of accepting his invitation to do what the world says doesn't make sense and rest. If you want proof of that, pay attention to Chick-fil-A. If you want proof of that, pay attention to Hobby Lobby. Pay attention to their bottom lines and what happens in their corporations. They figured it out. 
they entered the convocation, the holy convocation. And certainly they've come under attack for it, but they have entered into the blessing that God says is theirs. And that same blessing is available to us. Now let me illustrate it for you this way. Let's just imagine that you sat down on a Friday afternoon with your boss. Now I'm looking around this room. I believe we have three elders present right now. Josh Erickson is sitting over here. Ray Brossman right back here. And Scott Granger is in the back. The elders are my boss. So we'll just use me as an illustration of this. I like the illustration, so it's an easy one to do. So let's just imagine that those three guys came into my office on Friday afternoon. I would be a little bit nervous at first, but then they would put my mind at ease when they lay an envelope down. So let's say that Josh is carrying that envelope and he lays it on my desk and he says, Phil, we really like you. We, we love you. We love the job you're doing. And so here's what we want you to do or what we have done for you. We have brought you a bonus. It's $1,000. It's in this envelope. It's a check. All you have to do is pick it up and go cash it. We want you to have it. So it's laying there on my desk, and Josh has explained that. And I look at Scott Granger, and Scott says, yeah, that's right, Phil. We, we just like you. We want you to have it. Ray looks at me, and he says, pick it up. Just pick it up, and then take it to the bank and cash it. It's 1000 bucks. want you to have it. Do you think I would leave that laying on the desk? Not a chance. I'm picking up the 1000 bucks. But then, picture this, and this is the part that I really like. Let's just say that Scott says, Phil, we like you so much. We love you so much. We love the job you're doing so much. We're going to bring you a $1,000 check every Friday. And we're going to lay it on your desk. $52,000 this year. We're going to lay it on your desk every week. All you have to do is pick it up. Just pick it up and go cash it. How many of you think I'm leaving those checks on the desk? <laughs> no, you wouldn't either. You wouldn't either. Ray, I love this idea, by the way. It's just, maybe it's God-ordained. I don't know. Well, we'll just see what happens with that. <laughs> you know, don't destroy the illustration. Not right in front of everybody. He says, dream on. <laughs> well, I could read in the other side of that, I guess. But anyway, I'm not leaving it on the desk, and neither are you. Folks, that's what Sabbath is. That's God coming to us saying, I love you so much. I'm putting this right in front of you. Pick it up. Pick it up. Worship and rest. Pick it up. And once we do, that sets the stage for us to live generously with all of our time because we are now following God's order and God's plan. And from there, if we want to live generously, it just requires three things. Three things, that's all it is. I'll show them to you as we make our way to the end here. The first one is this. 29,200 days that we have, every one of them needs to be ordered with these three things in mind. Number one, God. Every day needs to be ordered with God in mind. Let me take you to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Every day needs to be ordered through holiness. 
Holiness is you reflecting the very nature and character of God. And you're only going to reflect the very nature and character of God if you spend enough time with God that you know what his nature and his character is. And then you will have opportunity to reflect that. So every day has to be ordered with God in mind. How will I spend time with him that I might reflect him? So if we are truly going to number our days aright, we're going to use them the right way, and we've already got the baseline of Sabbath working for us, then the next step is simply a matter of saying, Lord, I want to be with you that I might know you and reflect you. That's the way it works. And did you catch the, the fact that Peter says, you do this in everything, whether that's at, at work or whether that is at play, which by the way, real quickly, Playing is God-ordained as well. The Lord wants you to play. He put certain desires in your heart that you would play and experience all that he has, yet you can't remove him from your play if you want to live generously with your time. So you bring him into it. Step number two, every day must be ordered with others in mind. Remember, and we've said this a lot as we've been going through this, this series, you are to love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So you have to reflect the love of God, holiness as it is poured out into you, into your neighbor's life. Listen to what the Bible says. This is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So you have to think about other people. If you are going to number your days aright, then you have to think first about God and then about the other people that surround you. Your neighbor are the people that surround you. Whether they live around you or they work around you, whatever the case might be, your neighbors are the people around you. So you order your days in such a way that you are giving the relationship that you have with God to other people. You are reflecting what he has done for you. So when you spend time with him every day, you are drawing out of every day what God wants for you to have that you might develop a heart of wisdom. And then when you start focusing on your neighbor, you are giving that away. You are passing that on. That's the way that works. And then the third part of this. Well, actually, before we get there, let me show you this. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. 
I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You want to do what? is pleasing to the Lord so that you will hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. It's all about other people. It's all about how you order your days with others in mind, your neighbors in mind. So first, you spend time with God and you order your day that way. And second, you order your day with others. And third, you order your days with the church in mind. The church. Now, that's a little surprising to some people because they will think to themselves, all church is is something that I go to on Sunday, so I only need to order one day a week with church. But that's not the way it should be because God said the church is his bride and it is the expression of spiritual giftedness from his people. So the church should become a major part of your life, not because of religion, but because of relationship. And that means that we have to ask questions like this. What is my role in the church? What is my place in the church? Well, if we're going to ask that question, we have to understand why it's necessary to even explore those things. And Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 answer that question for us. Listen to what the writer says. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The closer we get to the return of Jesus, the more necessary it is for us to be involved in serving the Lord through his church. And if you're going to number your days aright, you're going to have to do it with service in mind. How are you serving God? How are you involved in the church? What are you doing to express the God-given gifts that you have? Every believer has them. How are you using yours? How are you involved in the church? There are a number of ministries at Libby Christian Church that take absolutely no preparation. They just need people to be present and to be a part of them. That's what we refer to as an entry point ministry. That's just a place to get started. And then there are other ministries that require great time commitments. You see the worship team up here every week. Have you ever asked yourself, how much time do they dedicate on a weekly basis? Well, they start at 10 hours. That's where that begins. Our elders and our leaders and ministry leaders in the church start at that same place. They have a 10-hour commitment to the church and beyond. And for many of them, it is way beyond. Because they have said, in order for me to number my days aright, I have to express the gifts that God has given me and I have to be used in such a way that eternity is impacted by my efforts, by what I'm doing. That's numbering our days aright, using them the way that we are supposed to. For a lot of folks, though, they never do it. They never choose to get involved. One of the great tragedies for me is when somebody leaves the church and then tells us later there just wasn't a place for me there. Yes, there is. Yes, there is. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about the body of Christ, and it teaches that there is a place for everyone in the body. There is a place for every person to serve. If you've never identified your place, it's time. 
You talk to me, you talk to Dini, you talk to Matt, you talk to Sharon, Beth, Liz, you talk to Les and Cindy, you talk to any one of our staff members, we will help you find that place. Because if you're going to number your days aright, you have to do it by ordering your service in the church. Otherwise, you're leaving out a third of your responsibility. So serve. We see holes in the auditorium right now because people chose to be out and about in the woods rather than being in worship today. We'll magnify that by the number of people that choose not to be involved in service and ministry. And when that happens, the church limps because this church was designed for your service and with your service in mind. And if you're not serving, the church is limping. If you haven't found your place, if you're not living generously through your time, the church isn't whole and complete. The church is limping. So you find a place so that that doesn't happen. And you serve. You serve. So it begins in understanding Sabbath, and then it moves into understanding every day spent with God and every day thinking about other people and every day looking at what your kingdom impact and influence is through the gifts that God has given you. And when you do that, you'll be living generously with time. 29,200 days. Every person has, on average, that many days. Some people exceed it. Some people don't quite reach that. But on average, that's what we all have. And that's what we all face. Some of those days are already gone. You can't do anything about those days. And if you look at them with great regret, you can wallow in a sense of self-pity. But know this. Even if you feel like you wasted those days, the blood of Jesus Christ covers those days. God is concerned with what you do with the days ahead more than he is concerned with what you have done with the days in the past. Choose to live generously from this day forward and see what God does with it. Why don't you stand and pray with me as the worship team comes. Father in heaven, this issue of time is personal to all of us. We all make our own choices of what to do with time. We all make our own decisions, and sometimes they're good and sometimes they're bad. But when we get purposeful about ordering our days, praying the prayer that Moses did and praying it from the heart with great expectation, Lord, cool things happen in our lives and in the kingdom. I'm grateful that you made it that way. Would you help us battle through the world's constraints so that we can embrace Sabbath. And then would you help us get so purposeful with every other day that we do nothing but order those days the way they're supposed to be, to number them so that they count, so that you use them. We're asking that in Jesus' name. Amen.